This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. So one thing we know about the Vancouver Canucks is it's not getting any easier. Tonight they'll face off against the Carolina Hurricanes. There is a game uh, against Seattle this week and then a game against the Pittsburgh Penguins who are amongst the elite uh, in the NHL. If you're hoping to pull out of the funk, This may not be the week to do it, but if they don't, what then? Uh, But what about what now? Here for the answer to that question uh, from sportsnet.ca. You see him on our Vancouver regionals as well. He is Ian McIntyre, and he joins me now. Uh, Ian, uh, you tweeted over the weekend, you've never seen anything like it before in Vancouver. We see jerseys on the ice. We see videos of jerseys going on barbecues, uh, players arguing on the ice. Uh, Jim Rutherford with a very eyebrow-raising interview with Scott Oak where, amongst other things, uh, he intimates that he was not aware uh, of the full uh, contract status of head coach Bruce Boudreau. Where would you like to begin with this uh, information buffet? Well, happily, I'd like to report that we are not yet under martial law here in in Vancouver so so we're trying we're trying to society is trying to continue uh, as we knew it for now but it was uh, i don't know it was extraordinary you left out the the part as well that uh, while Jim Rutherford was talking to Scott Oak about how Boost Boudreau wasn't his choice of of coach but agreed agreed to abide by the option year uh, while that was going on, or sorry, uh, Boudreaux was talking to us in the, in the media room, questioning the, essentially the professionalism of his players, which, you know, is, is like a coach who's talking, who knows he has nothing to lose that, you know, if he's going down, at least he's, he's going down swinging and, and is going to be honest about what has occurred the the remarkable part of all of that well other than other than all of that the, the remarkable part about the timing is that this occurred on game 1 of their home schedule this isn't this wasn't about the last 5 games although of course it it was about the last 5 games in the same way it's been about the last 5 years or the last 8 years but they came home from that road trip Oh three and two, they led in every game. They easily could have had three or four wins. They've got lots of flaws, lots of problems to sort it out. But the reality is, even with those flaws and problems, they could have come home with six or eight points. They came home with two, and then they play the home opener, and it, it almost felt like the end instead of the start. And where it goes from here. Who knows? You point out that they play the Carolina Carolina Hurricanes tonight, who are better than any of the teams that have beaten them so far. And then they go to Seattle uh, on a back-to-back with Pittsburgh uh, in here at the end of the week. And just by coincidence, it was against Pittsburgh that uh, Travis Green coached his last game last season. The Canucks lost that one after coming home from a long road trip. And uh, there was regime change the next day uh, on December 5th. So it is, uh, it is a daunting week. It just feels like it's going to go one way or another, that the team is going to patch up some of these flaws. You know, they're trying to change lines again and, and see if they can be a two-line team instead of a three-line scoring team. But either they're going to patch up these flaws, they're going to figure out how to kill a penalty, they're going to get a couple more saves from Thatcher Demko, and they're going to win some games, or it feels like it could actually unravel and get worse because we've seen that before uh, with this hockey team. I'll, I'll be blunt. You know, it, uh, there there is, because we all saw it coming last year, whether it was, you know, what happened with, with Travis Green, what happened with Jim Benning as well, there there does seem to be this element of, and you know, you're, you see JT Miller off to the to the to the wing, and Bo Horvat uh, is his center, etc. To your point about mixing up the lines, like there is a there is a sort of vibe of you know winding your watch on the weight of the electric chair through all of this. Like it almost seems as if it's you know marching towards a certain inevitability here, Ian. Now, I, I yeah. guess complicating that is. They're still paying Travis Green. You know, do they have the appetite or the stomach to pay two coaches not to coach? 
Well, and and what about the staff that they've brought brought in uh, to surround Boudreaux as well? I mean, a lot of people, I think, assume because they now have two former NHL head coaches on their staff. They have Jeremy Colleton coaching their minor league team. They have Mike Yo as as the senior assistant to Bruce Boudreaux. A lot of people assume, well, they've got these coaches. One of them just steps in, but I don't know that they want to do that to Jeremy Colleton. You know, they brought him here to work with their younger players and to develop some players. And I think for him, you know, kind of get his career uh, back on track after what happened in Chicago. And then with Mike Yo, Mike Yo was Bruce Boudreaux's first choice. He wasn't necessarily the first choice of Jim Rutherford and the GM Patrick Alvine. But when Bruce really wanted to hire Mike, they did their due diligence. They obviously talked to him several times and they agreed with Bruce, okay, yeah, Mike can be your senior assistant. It's not a slam dunk that he just takes over. So maybe they ride this out for a while uh, with with Boudreaux and, and you know, Rutherford. Uh, what I'll say about those two is their, their combined experience in hockey and the NHL is massive. Like, I mean, Rutherford's already yeah. in the Hall of Fame. I don't think Bruce is going to get there, but if he if he finds a way to win a, a Stanley Cup, maybe he will. But these guys have been through a lot. I think they're both realists. I think they understand what's happening. I think they're both pragmatists as well. And as uncomfortable as it, as the optics may be in this relationship and who hired whom and who really wants whom to coach, yeah. if any two guys can just make it work, they can make it work, but it's only going to work if the team starts to play better. And uh, see that that's the one thing that I keep coming back to here is this team who's on it, and I, I still look at this team and say, how are they not better? Um, I was mentioning this off the top. They have key players at every key position. Thatcher Demko, Quinn Hughes, Elias Pettersson, Bo Horvat. Like if they're if they're considering, I know that everyone's hesitant to. And Rutherford talked about this about how long rebuilds take, and you know, not all of them take that long. Um, see the New York Rangers uh, most recently. That that rebuild took a cozy five minutes, and then here we are. All of a sudden, we're saying the Rangers could make it to the Stanley Cup final. When you have players like the Vancouver Canucks have. Should the idea of a rebuild be as daunting as some people think it is? Or, you know, Ian, do you look at it and you say, listen, a lot of the heavy lifting here is already done. Just do this on the Hughes-Pedersen timeline with, you know, Horvat and Demko and have at it. Yeah, well, I think you make a good point, Jeff, because the rebuild, the foundation of the rebuild is already done because Jim Benning drafted uh, Demko and Hughes and, and Pedersen. Mm-hmm. And I, his failure and why that regime eventually uh, was changed is because he just didn't build out around them, right? He started, he, he got these foundational pieces and then they didn't build anything on the foundation. And so to your point, if they were going to pivot and try to build build on that foundation, well, at least the foundation's already there. You know, you're not you're not moving earth and sinking pilings and trying to find solid ground. You've already got that. Now you just have to build the frame on top of it. So it it shouldn't be mm-hmm. it shouldn't be this multi year suffering to to get to where you want to go. The problem is there's already been so many years of suffering for the fan base that even to hear the R word again uh, is, is very difficult for them, I think, to sell, to market, and mm-hmm. to get people to continue to, to buy tickets and, and support the team. In some respects, I don't think what, what Rutherford said on Saturday where you know, trying to retool the team and get get younger, and they want to get faster. They've tried to get faster. They have gotten a little bit faster. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's so different than than 
what the strategy was when he took over, when he hired uh, Patrick Alvine about a month after uh, he got to Vancouver. It's just it hasn't been expressed in the terms of a rebuild. And and then if you are going to rebuild now, or at least try to build, finish, you know, the structure on top of this foundation, then why did you just commit $56 million to J.T. Miller? And and what are you going to do about Bo Horvat, who's waiting for a contract? Um, it, it just seems like things haven't gone, haven't been in order. They haven't been in the order that they should be. And maybe that starts with the, the hiring of the coach, that the owner, Francesco Aquilini, hired, hired Boudreaux before he hired Rutherford. Things are out of order a little bit. Does uh, do you get a sense that Aquilini has any stomach to pay two coaches not to coach? Because Travis Green's still owed for this season, and then if they do something with Boudreaux, that's two to say nothing of who you're paying. Unless you're going to make, geez, make Mike Yo do it again. He did it last year with Philadelphia. Do they ask him to do it again this year uh, with the Vancouver? Yeah. Is is there an appetite from uh, Aquilini to pay two coaches to to watch them on TV? I don't think he has an appetite to pay pay anyone unnecessarily, but they have they have given Rutherford and Alvine uh, during this honeymoon period, and I'm I, I'm guessing the honeymoon is suddenly over. It probably ended on Saturday, but yeah. you know they they have a larger hockey operations department than they've ever had, and they've had as near as I can tell, uh, Rutherford and Alvine have had a green light to hire the people they want and, and, and shape the, the management structure uh, as they see fit. They've also spent millions on a renovation of the team uh, compound beneath Rogers Arena. This is, this is, there's no net revenue gain to that. It's got nothing to do with fan experience or making you know the building or the games more marketable. It's all about player comfort and and facilities and so the fact that they have been willing to spend on that if if rutherford tells them hey we got to do this we need another coach uh i i don't think they would say no i i I think they would you know they've let rutherford run the team as he's wanted to so far it's not even a year yet it was only december but uh, in answer to your question, no, they, they wouldn't be crazy about paying another coach, but they did uh, in another era. They fired Mike Gillis when he had $10 million left on his contract, and they fired John Tortorella when he had, I think, $8 million left, and, and Columbus rescued the Canucks on that one by hiring Tortorella, and I think there was a buyout formula for the Gillis contract. But they have not been averse in the past, when they feel like they have to make a move, that they make one even though it costs them a lot of money. Okay, we got about 90 seconds. Let's see if, and maybe this is for a bigger conversation, but we know how, and this is getting way ahead of ourselves here, but nonetheless, here we go. We know how Connor Bedard feels about the Vancouver Canucks. How does that market feel about doing what it would take to get him? Well, I, I think it, every market would love to have. Connor Bedard, um, and there, there certainly is a a strong rebuild component to the fan base. I don't know how many of them actually buy tickets and go to games, which is you know the fan component that the team cares most about. But there is a large component that, yeah. for years, have been saying, "Hey, you know, lose, strip it down, yeah. and and go get the best guy available." The the problem is. And I think most people in this uh, Canuck Nation would probably back me up on this. Given the history of the franchise, right from day one with the, with the lottery wheel one, yes, they could, they could finish yeah. last and have the best odds, but they're not going to win the draw to get Connor Bedard. I think a lot of people would feel that way. Not, they're, they're not getting Gilbert Perot. Gilbert Perot's not one of <laughs> no. in, the end, in, the, in the lottery. That ain't going to happen. They're getting Dale Talon. Uh, yeah, they're getting Dale. And uh, they got Dale Talon uh, back after all these years, too. He's part of their management group. Uh, 
after all this time. Uh, you're all you're all over the story. It's great. Uh, continue to do the great work on what's one of the more interesting stories around the NHL, Ian. It's uh, uh, we encourage everybody to read your stuff at Sportsnet.ca. You're uh, you're all over. Thanks for doing this again, pal. Yeah. Well, thanks for the kind words, Jeff. Nice to be on with you. The story's been a little bit too interesting, but I can't can't complain <laughs> as a journalist. May you live in interesting times, uh, as they say. Thanks so much for this, Ian. See you, Jeff. Ian McIntyre from uh, sportsnet.ca. All right, so that is a Vancouver situation. One of six games on the board tonight uh, is the late one, and that is the Vancouver Canucks and the Carolina Hurricanes. Should be a fascinating evening of hockey, comma, again. Story like, it's like, does every single game have to have, like, life-or-death implications? That's what it feels like, doesn't it, right now, around the NHL? And we've just started uh, the season. Coming up, Mike McKenna from Daily Faceoff. Ken Daniels coming up in uh, an hour or two as well. Keep it here. Covering the Raptors in depth like no one else. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, before we get to Mike McKenna, I want to uh, wish well to Rick Bonus, head coach of the Winnipeg Jets. Jets and Blues tonight. Uh, Bonus cut short his media avail this morning, suffering from dizzy spells. Uh, this morning was getting checked out um, by medical staff. Uh, and as we all know, Rick Bonus was just coming off a bout of COVID. Uh, we wish him the best. Uh, his Winnipeg Jets facing off against St. Louis Blues, one of six games on the go around the NHL this evening. And we're always interested in the goalie matchups. And we are always interested in talking to Mike McKenna from Daily Faceoff, our old buddy. How are you doing today, Mike? Hey, I'm great. I'm honored by that. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me on today. Uh, pleasure is always mine. I always like people that, that come on that can teach me something and uh, can either uh, confirm suspicions or shoot them down. Let me... Um, let me begin by, I'm just going to sort of go shotgun style with you, uh, if you don't mind, because uh, I've long been a fan of Carter Hart of the Philadelphia Flyers. This goes back to, you know, his days playing with the Silver Tips in the Western Hockey League, you know, two-time goalie of the year, etc. Always loved him. Is this legit right now what we're seeing? Like, I don't know that anyone expects, what is it, like 949 save percentage goaltending all the way through the season, but... I know whenever he has these moments, whenever he has these stretches, you say, that's the guy the Flyers have been waiting for. Is this the real Carter Hart, Mike McKenna? I sure hope so, because it's at a point now with Carter that, you know, you're coming into, you played three, four years in the league, and, and you're he's at the stage where really being dominant is what's expected. And I think that that was probably foisted on him a little bit early in his career, Jeff. He came out with all the accolades from, you know, whether it be from his junior career or drafts, S, whatever it was, and the expectations. And realistically, we have to realize goalies don't hit their prime until mid-20s. And that's where he's at right now. Now, is this sustainable, what we're seeing from Carter Hart, a save percentage above a 940? I mean, we saw Shostakovich lead the league last year with a 935. I don't think it's sustainable at this rate, but I do think that what I'm seeing from Carter in the eye test of it is that you've got a confident goaltender that's getting better help in front of him. It's not been great behind John Tortorella. I think Hart is masking some of the deficiencies of that team, but at least the Flyers are playing harder. And and I think that Hart's just having fun this year. It feels like he's got some enthusiasm back and that culture has just changed. And, you know, you look at the best teams in the league and, Tampa, New York last year, like these clubs have extraordinary goaltending. And to me, that's the difference. You can have a great team, but if you don't have great goaltending to go with it, you're going to be a good team. So I I think Hart's on the right path. I I think for me, 20 games, Jeff, is always kind of the benchmark. If you go 20 games into a season and the numbers are still looking in their 920s, 930, you can expect that the rest of the year. Mm -hmm. Do you have a magic number? Uh, speaking of, of of numbers of games, do you have a magic number for when you make your mind up about goaltenders? Like I've always sort of been in between that, like one hundred to one hundred and twenty-five. Like I need to see that many games before I decide on whether whether I like a goaltender or not. Do you have one of those? Uh, you know, I have a couple of different benchmarks. One of the first benchmarks is, was always for me, and especially because of my own career path, spending a lot of time, majority of my career in the American Hockey League, and then as a number three with NHL teams, 
I wanted to see a goalie dominate the American Hockey League for at least one year minimum, hopefully two. I thought that that gave a goalie readiness for success at the NHL level. And then once they got there, I thought that you needed to play at least two seasons, two full seasons worth before you're going to see it. Now, the numbers and the games played, that's the hard factor, Jeff. And I think that the games at the minors need to be factored in. Because if you get a goalie that just comes out like, let's say, a Carter Hart, like he was effectively learning on the job in the NHL. He spent half a season in the, in the American Hockey League. Like it's a big jump. And so to put a finite number on it's really hard for me. But I, I think the 100 game mark was used to be used to be a pretty good benchmark for goalies. Now I think we're getting lower because the training uh, has gotten better. The goalies are coming in more ready than they've been. And let's face it, teams are wagering on these goaltenders at a young age, whether it's contract status, whether it's just giving them reins to the crease. So, you know, I think we're starting to look more towards 65, 70, 75 games, where in the past I would have said two full seasons or something of an equivalent of maybe 100 games played. You know, it, it, the uh, the Carter Hart example is a fascinating one because, you know, uh, I think a lot of what was the undoing of, of Ron Hextall with the Philadelphia Flyers was he just didn't want to call him up that soon. So there's no, there's no point in calling them. Remember that fight, Mike, like don't, mm-hmm. don't call a hard up. And there was half the crowd that wanted hard up and you know, Hextall was preaching patience. And a lot of people in the Florida's uh, the Florida in the Flyers organization, like the, the Flyers aren't known for their patience uh, with anybody. Right. And we want to win now and get our players in here. ASAP. It probably cost Ron Hextall his job, but in hindsight, he was probably right. Like that he did yeah, some was more right. time in the American Hockey League, don't you think? Like he was right about this. I one, agree. Wasn't he? he was, and you know what? I, I knew that situation firsthand because I got claimed off waivers on January second by the Flyers, and I was part of the carousel that year when we set the record for NHL goaltenders for one team in a yeah. season. Um, and I got to see Hart play firsthand. I got to actually sit on the bench and watch Hart play and give him his water bottle, which was a lot of fun. Um, but <laughs> I think you're right. Like I think Hextall had the right idea. I think I actually think that Hextall or Hextall being tied to Derek Hextall probably led to his firing more so than than Carter Hart, but I think the Hart situation is really mm-hmm. kind of what intensified things in that scenario because, yes, there was this quest and this thirst that we need this hot young goaltender that can fix everything. And the realistic thing is that a goalie can't do it without a team in front of them. You need to have players that are succeeding in front of you to be able to do that. And, you know, I think these last couple of years, the Flyers have been so poor defensively that, you know, two years ago, we never saw the best of heart because of that. And then last year, he kind of rode the roller coaster. Yeah. And to get back to the point now where I think he's got a chance to really be successful again. You know, just hearing you talk about dominating the American Hockey League before you sort of actualize as a, as a, as a high-end NHL goaltender, there's one guy that jumps to mind for me right away. And, you know, I was curious to see where he landed because, you know, last year he, you know, he, well, he did what you said. He, he tore up the American Hockey League. Uh, Washington ended up signing him to back up Darcy Kemper. And hearing you talk about goalies in the NHL and dominating before you come in, I can't help but think of Charlie Lindgren. And mm-hmm. can this be, like, can he be the, that under-the-radar great signing in the offseason? You know, you had to pay a little bit on term, but it only cost you $1.1 million. Could Charlie Lindgren in Washington be that guy, Mike McKenna? It's a good question. I'm not sure on the answer of it. And the reason being is that Charlie's done, first, an amazing job with his career of sticking with it and getting to the point that he receives his three-year deal from the Washington Capitals. He began his pro career in 2015-16 coming out of college hockey uh, and then 16-17 going to the St. John's Ice Caps. And I actually played a playoff series against him that first year uh, with the Syracuse Crunch. Um, We beat them in the first round of playoffs. And I remember thinking, wow, this kid's really talented. And the hard part for him was that he got a three-year one-way from the Canadians. And Mm -hmm. he wasn't really able to grab it in Montreal. And then when he went back to Laval in the American League, Laval was awful. And I think that really hurt him. That team wasn't good, except for his first year pro. After that, it was tough. And he's kind of bounced around since then, and then he got passed up by other goaltenders. And once you lose favor on a depth chart, it's hard to regain it. And, you know, I'm not being Charlie myself, I'd have to imagine it was a breath of fresh air last season to go to the St. Louis Blues organization, where the team was incredible in Springfield in the American Hockey League. He knew he had a chance to win. Yeah. And then when he went up to the Blues, man, he was lights out. I mean, 5-0. and I mean, his save percentage was almost like a 960. Yeah. 
And, and it wasn't just eye test, it was real. So I, I think Lindgren at 28 years old is a very mature goaltender. It's just, can he manage playing those limited minutes rather than starting and playing a lot? That's always the hardest part, and it's very unpredictable. And, you know, he did. He dominated last year at the American League, and, you know, you see the other guys too. Look at Logan Thompson in Vegas, dominated the ECHL, dominated the American yeah. Hockey League, you know? You see a theme here, right, Jeff? Mm-hmm. Let me. Uh, the, that that's an interesting one too. Uh, was dominant at Brock. I think in the like half season or maybe I don't know if he played a full season as well. Uh, that he played there with Marty Williamson. Um, I I want to get to this, uh, so I want to just splash it out there now. I was really hoping to talk to you about this. Um, the Buffalo Sabres goaltending situation and a couple of things here. Craig Anderson is 41 years old. Craig Anderson is that goaltender that doesn't take the equipment home, you know, leaves it at the rink, goes and has his summer, uh, loads the wagon up, you know, drives, you know, back to his, his NHL city and pulls the pads out and starts playing. I don't think you're going to find anybody in the league that doesn't love Craig Anderson, who's the oldest player, by the way, in the NHL. And then there's Eric Comrie. And Eric Comrie, much like I suppose Jacob Markstrom before him, you know, for years had the tag of the best goaltender not in the NHL. And I can only imagine what goes through a goaltender's mind when year after year you hear, you're the best goalie not in the NHL. You probably think to yourself, yeah, I should really be in the NHL, you know, by, by this point. Uh, we all know his waivers stories and, you know, being bounced around from team to team. I know it's only a handful of games, but Eric Harmley's looked fantastic so far for the mm-hmm. Buffalo Sabres. Can you share a thought or two on both these goaltenders? One, uh, the guy that nobody was willing to give term to except the Buffalo Sabres, and it was only an extra year, and Craig Anderson, the, uh, the ageless wonder uh, in net for the Buffalo Sabres. Well, let's talk about Andy real quick first, okay? I love this guy. I mean, we, we yeah. were teammates in Ottawa together, and, yeah. and we were two old relics that liked to go go-karting, okay? So he actually, like, we have a kinship because <laughs> both of our fathers raced cars. His dad raced sports cars and Corvettes and IMSA, which is road racing. My dad raced in SCCA. They did some endurance racing. Like, we have a lot of things in common. And, nice. I mean, this dude goes home in the off season and coaches his kids' baseball teams and comes back. But what he does do is keep himself in great shape. So, you know, I I honestly thought that Craig was probably done two years ago during that weird COVID year when he was with Washington and just kind of in a number three role. And then he just was resurgent last year. And and I love what Craig brings as a dynamic to that locker room. It's a young team in Buffalo. They know they can get quality starts out of him. And there's no expectation. You know, he's playing at this stage because he can and he loves it and he's still good at it. And he's the perfect foil for an Eric Comrie because I can't understand other than one reason why Eric Comrie wasn't getting a bigger look from someone else. He's not a big goaltender, Jeff. And I think that that's probably been a knock, even though he's 6'1", which is insane to me to think that nobody wants to give this guy a chance, right? It's what he's listed as. So here's the thing. When I watch Comrie... (laughs) This guy's skating ability, Jeff, and his details are so strong. And he's got a, he has a vertical coverage and presence to him that a lot of goalies in today's game are lacking. They get low and wide and they get locked into their stance and position. Whereas Comrie, even with his smaller stature, he stays pretty vertical, keeps his feet together. He's incredibly patient, Jeff. He doesn't drop early, he arrives on time. And it's shades of Shishjurkin. Like, why Shishjurkin is so, so good is his skating. He beats the pass so he can sit on it and make a read. And, and I think for Comrie, it's just the hockey IQ. And knowing that he spent so many years as a number two on the ice in practice working on these details, he didn't take it for granted. Like, he may have been the best goalie in, uh, in the NHL or had that label, but he didn't just sit back and wait for the chance. He pushed it. He continued to push because... Not every goalie can skate and rotate and have the details to their game that Comrie has. And, and I think this is sustainable. Okay. Like, I, I don't know where the Sabres are going to end up. I don't know if Comrie ends up with a 915 or a 920 on the season or a 905. But I think at this right. stage, he's definitely proven that he deserves to be looked at as a potential number one and a great find for the Buffalo Sabres. Let me, uh, let me go back to Anderson real quick. And. Uh, uh, like you, I I have all the time in the in the world for Craig Anderson and his family. 
Um, so the, the decision, I believe, in Buffalo came down because they were going to get a veteran netminder. Uh, it's a young team. They wanted a veteran netminder. And the decision came down to either Craig Anderson or Devin Dubnik. And they went with Anderson, not just because of the goaltending, but also I believe they felt internally he'd be really good with the kids. Not that Devin Dubnik wouldn't, but there was a strong feeling that, you know, this is going to be a really young team. You know, we need the right veterans around. And they felt that Anderson could have been one of those guys. From your experience with him in Ottawa, was Buffalo right? Definitely. And the amazing part to this, Jeff, and I hope that I hope Craig doesn't come down on me for this if he hears it, but you know, I, I don't think Craig necessarily had the greatest reputation as a young goaltender. Okay. Coming from Norfolk hmm. when him and Michael Layton just oil and water. Like they just hated each other. They were two hot prospects coming along and and you didn't see that often. Like most of the time goalies goalie partners got along pretty well. And like I don't really think that for Craig it took him getting rooted in Ottawa and, and having success there and, and frankly being humbled a few times, you know, even when Florida decided to bring in Eddie Belfort to play a year when Anderson probably should have been there, like that was kind of a humbling moment. And he had a few of those over the years. And so when I walked into Ottawa in 2018 for training camp, I saw a guy who the young players all gravitated towards that they looked up to that they trusted, you know, not just as a goalie, but as, you know, something of a leader and even something as a, of a coach amongst the team. And so um, mm-hmm. I, that part to me is just fascinating and how, you know, you get someone who, like I say, like I think that he, he'll tell you, I mean, I was the headstrong goalie, you know, and all these expectations to now at 41 years of age, 20 years into a career being someone that is valued just as much off the ice as on the ice and looked up to. And, you know, a big part of that's his family. Like he's got an unbelievable family, Nicole, the kids, like, I really I look up to them myself, not just from hockey, but just as the aspect off the ice and what you know my wife and kids do. So I think it was a smart play by Kevin Adams in Buffalo, especially to to bring him in for another year this season. Is there um, with Mike McKenna, Mike? Is there one goaltender that you look at? Whether you know, I don't know. Take take your pick: Ilya Samsonov, uh, Jordan Bennington, players that are looking goaltenders that are looking for that bounce back season. Heck, we just talked about Carter Hart. Uh, and he's having a heck of a bounce back. Is there is there one guy that you look at and you say he looks good, and I really do think it's sustainable? Boy, you know, there's so many of them around the league that always you want to have a better season. But was it really tangibly that bad last year? You know, <laughs> um, I've got my eye on one goaltender though that probably doesn't jump off the board anybody, and it's it's Capo Kakinen out in San Jose, and, and the reason being is that he was tagged as probably being the next guy in Minnesota and another American league. He was the best goalie in the American league yeah. several years ago, won the Baz Bastion award, had a lot of juice coming out. And, you know, for whatever reason, Ottawa didn't, or sorry, Minnesota didn't believe in him. They didn't think that he was going to be the guy that could carry it. And now he's at a stage where James Reimers played better so far in San Jose as well. And so I think that this is someone that's, really trying to find his place in the league and needs a big season to do so. Um, you know, amongst the top teams, who are we looking for that's going to really look at it? I mean, you mentioned a couple of good pieces there, but I, I really don't see, you know, other than a Sam Sonoff who just kind of fell by the wayside in, in Washington for whatever reason, that Georgiev has a lot on his plate. You know, he's wanted to be a number one, but is he really bouncing back? Because he's never been a number one. I don't know where that goes. So um, I'd love to be able to talk about Matt Murray, but he's hurt yet again. Um, Same way with Peter Mrazek. So um, I I really do. I look at Kakanen and I think, man, this is a guy who's got to recover. And I also think that Cal Peterson's in that same boat. He's starting a five-year deal at $5 million per last year. He was below a 90% save percentage. The door is wide open in L.A. to take that crease. And Peterson's got to grab it this year. If he doesn't grab it this year, that's that contract is burdensome for for the LA Kings, and I'm not sure where they go with it. Uh, let me conclude on this one. Um, Elliot and I were mentioning him on the podcast we did last night, and you know the the point being that there may not be there may not be a goaltender who has more riding on him based on the team's expectations 
and how good the team's underlying numbers are that get completely undone by the goaltending, as we've seen the last couple of seasons. There may not be anyone more important between the pipes for their team than Mackenzie Blackwood in New Jersey. Agree or disagree? I think it's real, and I think Vanacek fits that bill just as much because, let's face it, you know, Tom Fitzgerald, who's he, what's he bringing Vanacek in for this summer with that trade for Washington and giving him a $3.4 million contract? It, it's to play hockey games. Yeah. It's not just to push Blackwood. It's, it's to find a solution in the net. And I know Blackwood has battled... He's battled injuries. Uh, he's, you know, just had a tough go the last couple of years in general. But the, the underlying numbers have been really good in Jersey. But is it really just heaped on goalies? And this is where I kind of have to look at analytics and wonder, Jeff, because, and I don't mean to throw all the shade in the world but Lindy, at Lindy Ruff, but, like, you know, his team, when he coached the Dallas Stars, was fourth worst in the NHL at defending. And they've been the worst in the NHL at defending in Jersey as well. And is that purely analytics? Is it just goaltending? Is it bad luck? I think it's kind of a combination of things. But you know, Blackwood last year is a goaltender that he was being talked about in the circles for playing for Team Canada at the Olympics. And Correct. by the end yep. of the year, we're talking about trade bait, can he play in the NHL? And this is real. You know, Corpus is probably in that same boat in Columbus if and when he comes back from injury. You know, can they grab roles and be serviceable NHL goalies? And not just serviceable, but a number one. Blackwood is supposed to be a number one goaltender in the NHL. And that path isn't clear. Yep. He will have some competition from Vanacek, and I think that's good for him. But when I watch him, I still don't see that confidence there. I don't see that goaltender from two or three years ago that had that swagger and fire, and you knew that under the gear you had the strongest lineman in the world. Like, I just think he looks a little bit lost in his positioning and his movements, and I'm not sure if that's from time away or if that's just from that lack of confidence, but it's only going to come with more repetitions, and he's going to have to earn those starts. That's the hardest part. Let me conclude on, on one name, and he sort of picked up right where he left off last year against the against the Calgary Flames, and that's Jake Ottinger. Uh, on a day where Carey Price says, I just want to focus on being healthy day-to-day and feel good day-to-day, you know, we wonder whether Jake Ottinger, because he's in that group, right? Like, he's not that, you know, uh, uh, Shesterkin group, you know, with Vasilevsky and Jacob Markstrom. He's in that next group, and you could throw Carter Hart, I think, into that conversation, Spencer Knight probably in that group as well. Uh, are we seeing, I don't want to say the next Carey Price, because I hate to burden anyone with that, but are we seeing the next great one right now in Jake Ottinger? <laughs> you know, Carey Price was the technical model for a very long time for young goaltenders. When I tell kids that are starting in the position who to watch for NHL games, it was Carey Price. And I think at today's game, it's it's Shishjurkin. Shishjurkin has taken that place as the archetype. But Boy, if I'm not filtering an awful lot of Jake Ottinger clips into the mix right now, Jeff. Like I, I think that his dedication to the game as a fan and as a player is tangible. And I always talk about details. And that comes with skating. It comes with routes. It comes with arriving square to the puck. And that's where I've seen Stride and Ottinger's game. You know, in college, you can kind of get away with things like he did when he was playing with Boston. You just, you can play a little flatter. You can play a little bit further out of your crease. I think Ottinger's really gone to school. And I think that he's looked at the goalies around him and realized, okay, I can play this game at the top of my crease. I can play a little bit more vertical. I don't have to be so wide. And I don't think you make those, you don't make those conclusions in your own mind without paying attention to everyone around you and the best around you. And that's the reason, Jeff, why. I'm very bullish on Ottinger long-term. I don't see a goaltender that I think is going to be static in his position and not be willing to change as the world goes. Because even in the last three or four years, it may not be obvious to a lot of people's eyes, but goaltending has evolved and changed. And Ottinger does a lot of those things. I I see him as this crazy mix of, of Vasilevsky at times and Ben Bishop. Like if you if those two somehow had a baby, I think you got Vasilevsky and Bishop and Ottinger. <laughs> so um, I I envy Jeff Reese, the goalie coach of the Dallas Stars, because he's had some great goaltenders, and I know he's been a big part of it. Yeah. Um, but that club has always been very happy with the mental approach of Ottinger's game, and I think that's what's going to carry him. 
Well, I think we have our headline for the show. If uh, if Andre Vasilevsky and Ben Bishop had a child, it would be Jake Ottinger. Our work here is done. <laughs> uh, Mike, you're the best pal. Thanks, uh, as always, for stopping by. <laughs> always interesting, uh, informative as well, and we end on a giggle too. That's great. Thanks, pal. You be good. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. From Daily Faceoff, he is uh, the one and only Mike McKenna. Follow that man on Twitter. Um, we're going to get to uh, Ken Daniels coming up towards the bottom of the hour and uh, more talk on the Detroit Red Wings, um, who are really impressing people. Like, I, like Jacob Vrana is off um, uh, dealing with you know personal issues, um, and Tyler Bertuzzi is hurt, uh, yet that left side still looks really good. Dominic Kubalik looks really good, and... You know, there's uh, there's auditions for you know uh, <laughs> there's auditions in Detroit, and it might have might be a long time coming. You might say to yourself, "Well, they should have made a decision already right now on Philip Sedina." But nonetheless, like all of a sudden, you thought the left side was going to be Verana Bertuzzi. Now it's Kubalik and Zadina, and Detroit looks just fine. Thank you very much. We'll get to Ken Daniels just after the bottom of the hour break. In the meantime, uh, helping us set up the week is our producer, Matt Marchese. He joins me now. Hello, Maddie. Hello, Jeffrey. Uh, what are we looking at this week? I know there's a huge one tonight with uh, the Carolina Hurricanes and the Vancouver Canucks, but what do you uh, what do you have your eyes on as you look forward to the next five or six days? So there's a there's a bunch of of good games. So only three teams remain undefeated in regulation: uh, Pittsburgh, Detroit, and Dallas. And Pittsburgh plays tonight against the Edmonton Oilers. So that one is a fun one. But the one there's there's actually the, Tuesday is is my favorite night because we have Dallas at Ten Boston. Games. Ten games. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Dallas at Boston, Colorado at the Rangers, and the Penguins at the Flames. Those are three really, really fun matchups early on in the year. And and of all the teams, I mean, Boston, Boston has to be the most surprising of that group, just because I mean, we were we all thought, okay, Charlie McAvoy's out. They they missed Matt Grizzly for a few games, and Brad Marchand's still out. And yet the Bruins are five and one. And and going and they're going to be at home against the Stars, who are undefeated in regulation. Like I didn't have that one penciled in before the season started as a as a good matchup, but that should be really fun on Tuesday night. Uh, Linus Allmark will get the start for the uh, for the Boston Bruins, but they have uh, they've got a busy week. Like as you mentioned, they got the back to back Detroit Columbus, so we will see some Jeremy Swayman here uh, in the mix. Uh, I like Boston. Uh, I'm not sure if you watched the uh, the Saturday afternoon game uh, against the Minnesota Wild. Even though they go down one early, uh, they cut This is the they welcome back Zdeno Chara, which was a great visual. Comes out with his two boys uh, as well to drop the puck. It's great seeing the ovation and the video tribute and all that to Chara. I like Boston under Montgomery. Like they look different. Like they play different. It's and this isn't. It's going to come across as a shot at Bruce Cassidy, but it's not. It's uh, it's the same players but playing a different style and a more up tempo style and a more free style, uh, as well. And that Krejci Hall Pasternak line looks good, like really, really good. And it was wasn't just that one game, um, but they've looked excellent. Um, you know, there's some salary cap issues that are going to occur when they start to get some of their big time players back. We'll see how they sort those things out. But I like Boston. Like if you hadn't if you haven't watched the Boston Bruins yet this season. Do yourself a favor because this is more up-tempo, you know, more, I would say, creative hockey, Matty. Would that be accurate from the Boston Bruins this season? And 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 David Pasternak is just, like, he's going to cost a bajillion dollars by the time the season's done. Well, and that was kind of the key ingredient that they were missing last year, right? We talked about, you know, the the need for that. They, they were looking for that second-line center, and, and they lost him when David Krejci left to go play in his, his native Czech Republic. And now he's back and you look at him and go, okay, now everything kind of falls into place a little bit. The guy that, that I've been super impressed with, as we all should be, um, David Pasternak. He's in a contract year and you talk about David Krejci yeah. making a bajillion dollars. David uh, David Pasternak, uh, he's, he's going to yeah. make like even more than a bajillion dollars. And he's shooting the puck at an incredible rate now, not the percentage, but he has 37 shots through six games. I mean, he's going to fire as many pucks to the net as possible. And we're talking about sneaky good. I think David Pasternak looking at the 50 goal mark this year, I don't think is, is far off. Mm. 
You know, a couple of other stories here. Uh, one, Nick Foligno, who everybody, I shouldn't say everybody, I think many of us were surprised, Maddie, that he didn't get bought out in the offseason, as we all know about the uh, impending cap situation with the Boston Bruins. Uh, I think a lot of us were a little bit shocked at that. You know, in six games, he's got three goals and an assist good for four points. You know, and that's playing, you know, 12 minutes a night. Now, I know his cap hit's pretty healthy, just a shade under four. But that's real good for Nick Foligno. And I'm happy for him. And A.J. Greer with three goals in five games as well. And he's only playing 10 minutes a night. These are two fourth-line guys right now for the Boston Bruins. And they're getting more production, you know, out of these guys than they're getting out of Craig Smith, that they're getting out of Charlie Coyle, you know, and these types of players. So I'm happy for Greer and really happy for Nick Foligno. Uh, What else on your mind? Uh there's a there was a quote from back in 2013. It was December 2013. It was Yarmir Yager, and he said about okay. Valerie Nichushkin, "This guy is going to be the best in the world one day." And I don't know if we're there with Valerie yep. Nichushkin, but six goals and five assists and eleven points in six games. He is having an incredible year. He got the big contract in the off season, and and that's another one. That's a, that's a big one on Wednesday night. Um, the or sorry on uh, on Tuesday night, the Avalanche and the Rangers and Nachushkin is just fit in so seamlessly. And I remember having conversations about him, God, with, with you years ago about how impressive this guy was. And he just—it's almost like he needed time away from the NHL to figure out how good he was. Um. The conversations around Valerian Nachushkin, at least in the last three years, have revolved around him as a as a shutdown forward and as that Selkie Trophy candidate. The interesting thing about Valerian Nachushkin is, you know, he really popped big last season, and I think you can make a uh, a, a lowercase argument for him winning the Conn Smythe Trophy. Like like last year, fifty two points in sixty two games, twenty five goals. So it finally comes together for Valery Nichushkin and they reward him with the contract. But that's a, like, that's a, I don't want to say it's a risk because you know, the player he's yours. You've had him for years if you're Colorado, but it, it wasn't as if, you know, Valery Nichushkin was, you know, lighting the league on fire ever. Right? Like here's a guy that we all looked at and said, He's going to go down as this elite-level skilled player who was never really able to produce in any consistent fashion. What a waste of talent. But he gets to Colorado, a much better fit for him. Uh, he turns into this often, uh, this two-way dynamo. But, you know, I know points get you money and points get you paid. I still think this was a little bit of a risk for Colorado, like the both the money and the term. Now, he's he's earning every single penny of it. Right, he leads the Avalanche in scoring, six goals, eleven points. Um, you know, he can play pretty much anywhere you want him uh, in any type of role as well. Like he can be your top offensive winger, he can be your top defensive winger. Like uh, we talked plenty about him last year. I got a lot of time for him. I just think he's that good. But when that contract was signed, you know, that's a great case of we're just thinking about Valeri Nachushkin the past season. We don't think about. You know uh, the three, the, the two previous seasons with the Avalanche. When sure he was a great defensive center, but the production wasn't there. But holy smokes, is he out of the gate fast, Maddie, with eleven points? He's looked great, just flat out great for Colorado. Yeah, he has looked great, and that that whole team. I mean, offensively, we know what we're going to get, and they haven't even had a, the Kale McCarr breakout yet. So we're we're expecting that 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 is going to come, and then to finish off the week, and it'll lead into our next guest, Detroit and Boston on Thursday night should be a really really fun matchup. Uh, Detroit has been one of the most fun teams to watch, and and Steve Eiserman deserves a lot of credit for the offseason that he had. Indeed. And uh, on that, we'll step away and we'll come back. We'll talk to Ken Daniels about the Detroit Red Wings, uh, one of the most interesting teams in the NHL, one that are surprising uh, a lot of teams and no shortage of storylines around Derek Lalonde's uh, Detroit Red Wings here. Hit a break. Ken Daniels on the other side of it. Merrick show continues. We're talking wings in a moment. Keep it here. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Another busy Monday around the NHL. Six games on the go. Kicks off with the Stars and Sens, the Caps and the Devils. A pair of games there at 7 o'clock Eastern. We are, uh, by the way, standing by for Ken Daniels, play-by-play voice of the Detroit Red Wings. Uh, they face off against the New Jersey Devils tomorrow. But we got the Stars and the Sens at 7. And, uh, you know, the initial... The initial word on Josh Norris, not good. DJ Smith this morning at practice saying it's going to be a couple of weeks, but listen, it's the left shoulder. We've seen him injure this left shoulder before. This goes back to 2019. You saw how upset Josh Norris was when he left the game on Saturday going down the hallway and whipping his glove. You can see that he's both A, in discomfort, and B, angry because he knows what this is and how long this might be and what the expectations are uh, for him this season to say nothing of the Ottawa Senators themselves. Nonetheless, Derek Broussard uh, goes in his spot. He will play between Giroux and Brinkett, and those Sens will face off against the Dallas Stars. To me, one of the more... Like, there are two teams that have sort of... Well, and well I guess we'll get to Detroit here. Maybe that's true as well, under Derek Lalone. But um, really changed the way that they've played with uh, with the new coach. And one of those teams are the Dallas Stars. I know I may end up talking too much about Dallas, but I really find them fascinating. I really find them an intriguing team. Uh, we just talked to Mike McKenna about Jake Ottinger, one of the elite in the NHL. We all saw what he did last year against Calgary. Um, but this year, in a more freer system, and one whose offense is predicated on second chances, creating rebounds, uh, if you will, uh, a lot more point shots. Uh, because with Peter DeBoer's team, I think Vegas last year with DeBoer, they were number one, maybe number two with uh, with shots from the point, and I don't think those are intended to co- go in. Uh, those are more intended to create rebounds. Nonetheless, Dallas Stars and the Ottawa Senators, uh, Washington Capitals and the New Jersey Devils. Mackenzie Blackwood, by the way, NHL third star uh, of the week there. Um, Rasmus Dahlin, star number one, no shock. He's been outstanding. Uh, Brady Kachuk, star number two, and the aforementioned Mackenzie Blackwood. And just to uh, just to, to to finish up our thoughts there on the on the games tonight, uh, Caps and Devils, Penguins and the Oilers. Watch that one on Sportsnet One. Uh, the Jets and the Blues. Rick Bonus experiencing dizziness was attended to by medical staff. Um, we wish him the best always. Uh, Jets face off against the Blues. Uh, Phil Kessel ties the Ironman streak tonight because we all saw that coming in his career as the Vegas Golden Knights face off against the Toronto Maple Leafs. And then the Vancouver Canucks still in search of win number one. They face off against the Carolina Hurricanes. The Detroit Red Wings are next in action against the New Jersey Devils tomorrow. Here for comments on the Wings who look real good uh, as they kick off their season. He is a great Ken Daniels play-by-play voice of the Wings and he joins me now. Kenny, how are you today? Good, Jeff. How are you? Uh, I am well. Just a, a real quick observation because you were there for all of it with Blaschel and you've been there right now with Derek Lalone. Um, your thoughts on how this team plays differently from one coach to another. What are you seeing now, Kenny? Well, Barry Trotz may not have invented the one three one four check, but his teams live by it, or one one three, meaning one forward up, and then that F two, that second forward in behind, and then the other three. But it works, and Tampa live by it, and Derek Lalone, who enforced it there with John Cooper, and he's implemented it here. What it does, according to Dylan Larkin, I remember him saying how we stop them through the neutral zone, forcing them to make a play they don't want to make, means we're in a better spot to break out the puck ourselves going the other way. And that seems to have worked, and it's attention to detail. So I think um, that is the major change. And in fairness to Jeff Blaschel, I think Derek Lalone has a lot better pieces with which to implement it. And I think a lot of what Blaschel was trying to do, you still say, this is true of, you know, I talked to Peter DeBoer last week, and you know, we asked about, you know, the, the way that he tends to, to coach teams by, you know, uh, generating second opportunities, creating rebounds and stuff. And we talked about playing more offensively. And he, like, right away went to Rick Bonus and said, like, look, there was a lot of work that was done by Rick Bonus that's still here on this team. And no matter what I do, this team is still going to have Rick Bonus's fingerprints on it. Is there anything that comes to your mind when you look at what Jeff Blaschel, I know there are different personnel as well, but that Jeff Blaschel tried to do that you still see appearing with uh, Derek Lalone's team? Not really, because I, I think they changed it. And, and that 1-3-1, that one, one, much more aggressive. I think they're more aggressive on the, um, 
on the penalty kill for sure. And the power play, even though Alex Tange is the, the holdover and still the, the power play coach, uh, I believe, again, mm-hmm. he's got other pieces here. You've got David Perron, right-hand shot, left side. You've got Kubalik to fire. And it's now Horonic on the number one power play and trying to get Mo Sider to look at things a little differently. So, no, not, not really. But, again, and that's, that's nothing against Jeff. Six years out of the playoffs, but there just wasn't enough there. Um, for him to do much with. I think the guys like him. I think Derek Lalone, and, and he's good friends with Jeff Blaschel. Like, as you know, they replaced one another, although one head coach and Jeff now an assistant. They're similar, but, I, you know, Derek's got a very positive attitude, and I think the guys like that. He's uh, full bore on, on pointing out things that go wrong, but he's not hammering it, I don't believe, but very positive in the end how we can be better and do this right. And again, we hear it so often. It's a different voice in the room. Uh, it really is. Um, I think that Dylan Larkin is one of the best players in the NHL, full stop. So far, one of the best plays I've seen, and I know the season's early, but the, one of the best plays I've seen all season long is that back check on the Los Angeles Kings, which kept the wings alive and uh, and helped get them a point. That was spectacular. We know all about the contract situation and uh, what he faces at the uh, at the end of the season, but... Um, you know, he, Dylan Larkin and his effect on Dominic Kubalik right now. What are your, your thoughts on what you're seeing from Larkin? And, you know, I was talking to Elliot a second ago about, you know, does can, can Kubalik sustain uh, what we're seeing right now? How much of this is, is the Dylan Larkin effect, essentially? Well, Dylan Larkin effect has that on a lot of players. Uh, for Lucas Raymond last year as a rookie, uh, Tyler Bertuzzi and Having said that, I think Tyler Bertuzzi has a great effect on Dylan Larkin, too, which I'm glad with Tyler out of the lineup, and he's going to be gone for up to, to five weeks or so. I'm glad to see the start that Dylan's had. And I David Perron up there now with Dylan Larkin because he's such a good skater, and I think someone like David needs that. And Dominic Kubelik can skate, too, and I think they work well with one another. Dylan Larkin's such a great setup guy. He's got a fantastic shot that he's really worked on and improved that over the last year, too. You can see by his goal total. But I think Dominic Kubelik is a guy who has the potential to score 30 again. Uh, he did it as, as a rookie and playing a lot with Kane and, and a lot with Taves. Uh, and then something like maybe 32 the next two years. So obviously it, it fell off a little bit. But certainly I think with Dylan Larkin, Dominic Kubelik can be a 25 to 30 goal scorer. I love Dylan's game. You saw that coming back on, on Arvidsson uh, against Los Angeles, the empty net, as you pointed out. He did it the year prior to uh, in what turned out to be a shootout win at Madison Square Garden. Coming back, although there was a goalie in, Arnautemi Panarin wasn't expecting Dylan to come back, and he did. It's that never-say-die attitude. He's a terrific leader. The guys love him, and uh, I... You know, you feel badly. He's been in the league this long for Dylan, going to be an unrestricted free agent, made the playoffs his first year in the league seven years ago, and uh, the last six out, you just hope, you know, he ages well into a group around him, and I think that's what Steve's trying to do, to give him a shot to be that catalyst to move forward and maybe a year from now truly have a legit shot to be in the playoffs. Did you ever think with Ken Daniels' play-by-play voice of the Detroit Red Wings, did you ever think, Kenny, that we'd see a six-foot-three player be considered the squirt on a line? <laughs> no. And, of course, you, you're, you're talking about Oscar Sundquist with whatever we call that line, as, as Mickey's referred to it as the treesome, uh, because they're tall like trees. you got uh, the Redwoods line for the big California Redwoods. you got the big three for the Motor City, uh, the automakers, whatever you want to call it. But, yeah, Rasmussen at 6'6", six, six, and uh, Oscar Soderblom, at the six eight, you know, uh, talking with Hawk and Anderson a couple of years ago when they when they drafted uh, Elmer Soderblom, and you know he was a sixth round pick in nineteen, and maybe a year later, I said, what is the main thing he's got to improve on? And uh, Hawk and it said, well, one skating, but he's getting there. The other thing is protecting the puck, and I think you're seeing that even a little bit better now. He did so well in Sweden last year, protecting the puck with his size. He's not necessarily a nasty guy. He's not going to run people through the boards. But I believe that when he starts to come off the boards a little bit, 
protecting the puck, he's going to give himself some more options to play the puck and not be up against the boards with that reach and with that rear end and what he can do. And, and Derek Lalone has put him out there penalty killing. Power play is the net front now, which he'd never played before. He did in Sweden. So, you know, killing penalties late in the game. You've seen that line out there protecting the lead. So that says something. There's the trust of the coach there in that third line too. I really believe Elmer Soderblom can be a dominant third line winger in the National Hockey League within a couple of years. What's he like as a person? Great. Wonderful. And I first thing, you know, me being five seven and him six eight and nearly seven feet on skates was to take a picture <laughs> with him on Instagram. But he talked about uh, his sister who's a basketball player uh, in Carolina I and am. his brother Arvid who's uh, with the uh, Chicago Blackhawks and he's six three. I said, uh, how tall are your parents? He said, my sister's got my, my dad probably in his uh, uh, but his dad's name is Martin. So it probably got my dad by about an inch or so. And I said, how tall is your mom? Five one. And he laughed. He said, no, she's got some pretty good height too. He's just a great, a wonderful guy to talk to. They all are. They're Swedish, right? They're, they're Swedish. Yeah. But you know, he, he even told me that he's got to work on removing that tunnel vision from his game, that, that pass. And he's getting there. The more he plays, just the more confident he's going to get. And then just a wonderful guy as, as most of the guys in that room are. Swedish hockey players, high talent, low maintenance. That has always yeah. been the reputation uh, yeah. for, for Swedish hockey players. By and large. What is the expectation for this team, Ken? Like we keep hearing, okay, someone's going to take a step back in the Atlantic. One of these teams, whether it's the Sens or the Wings or the Sabres, someone's poised to jump up here. Um, listen, you know, you're right there. Steve Eiser made a lot of moves in the offseason at every single position, netminder, blue line, up front. What's the expectation this season for the Wings? Well, young teams don't win Stanley Cups, and uh, young teams also don't progress like they should if there's only youth. So I believe that Steve wanted to surround that youth. And when, you know, Simon Edmondson now in Grand Rapids and off to a pretty good start, at some point you'll probably see him, but whether it's Soderblom, et cetera. But you needed the guys like an Andrew Kopp. You needed the guys like David Perron to come in. And they haven't named alternate captains yet, but probably those two or Sherratt will be permanent ones for this season behind Dylan Larkin. So you needed that for those players to feed off. He made those moves so that this team can be competitive and have some hope in March and April. Even Steve said, if you took your top six, three in the Metro and three in the Atlantic, you basically got eight teams competing for a couple of spots. It's not easy. I don't believe that their, their mission this year was playoffs. Their mission this year was to be playing competitive games March and April, and I believe what he's done and, you know, pending when Jacob Verana can return, and we hope he'll, he'll do well coming out of all this. And, and Tyler Bertuzzi, five weeks away, if there are no other injuries and they can hold it in until then, so far the Red Wings have beaten the teams they should beat. And even the games that they've lost, they've mm. been right in there to win those games too. So as the schedule gets a little bit tougher, and New Jersey coming in tomorrow and Blackwood Player of the Week, and then you go uh, you know, into Boston, so uh, you got Minnesota. So the schedule starts to get tougher. I, I believe the mission is just to be competitive and hang in there so you're playing meaningful games in March and April. Last year, March 1st, this team was 500 beating Carolina, but you still knew realistically there wasn't a playoff shot. I think this year, if they can be above that coming into March, there's still that hope that you're playing meaningful games, and that is the long-winded answer to your explanation of uh, the expectation. Yeah, uh, deeper in the season in all three periods. Um, r- real quick, got about 60 seconds here, Ken. Uh, we do wonder about Dylan Larkin and the contract. He seems to obviously love it in Detroit, been really productive, one of the best players in the NHL. Do you think this is a case, you know, not like, you know, Elliot was mentioning this on the podcast, not like what Iserman went through with Steven Stamkos where he essentially said, this is the number, let me know when you want to get to it. And that's where it's at. That that be safe to assume? Yeah. <laughs> I would think that's safe to assume because of Steve <laughs> and anyone who tells you they know something doesn't because nothing gets out of that room. And I, the Red Wings have no problem. Oh, yeah. I, I, I believe they have no problem giving Dylan Larkin eight years. I think it depends on the number. And he can only get eight years from Detroit. So someone could offer him much more yeah. somewhere else if he wants to go to market, but he's only getting seven years. So to me, uh, yeah, I think there's a number there for eight years in Detroit. Yeah. 
and it's uh, it's pretty clear he loves it there and wants to be there. Uh, listen, always look forward to Red Wings games. Uh, this team's a lot of fun. Must be a lot of fun to call, uh, a lot of fun to cover because it's a lot of fun uh, to watch them. Ken, you're the best. Thanks as always for stopping by. Thank you very much. And I know the Red Wings are doing better because you're uh, this past week. I've had some, some of these to do these calls on, on radio and podcasts. I never had any last year. So this is a good sign. <laughs> it's a good indication. It's going the right direction. Yeah. Starting to see, you know, team, team teams can exist in two States, right? Bloom and brood and the wings have been brooding for too long. And now it's almost the bloom phase for this, uh, for yeah, this organization. Thanks good. so much for this, Ken. Much appreciated. Thanks, Jeff. There he is, Ken Daniels, play-by-play voice of the Detroit Red Wings. They are next in action uh, tomorrow against Mackenzie Blackwood and the New Jersey Devils. Um, the late game tonight may be the most fascinating. Well, first of all, before that, the Maple Leafs and the Vegas Golden Knights, Phil Kessel ties, Keith Yandel's Iron Man streak. And one thing that I want to point out about Yandel's Iron Man streak, and this is full kudos to the Philadelphia Flyers. I think everybody in the organization thought, okay, Yandel's going to get the Iron Man, but Phil Kessel's going to overtake him. And they all knew that at some point, Yandel was probably going to have to come out of the lineup. Probably should have happened sooner, but they let him get the Iron Man streak. And then they let him have enough games that Phil Kessel wouldn't be able to catch him last year. That they gave Yandel the remainder of the year to be the Iron Man and the entire summer as well to celebrate it as we celebrate small things in the NHL that may seem like a small thing but to keep the handle it was a big one and for that kudos to the Philadelphia Flyers it's the Golden Knights and the Maple Leafs the Carolina Hurricanes face off against the Vancouver Canucks and that's a big one for obvious reasons Merrick show back tomorrow to document all of it at noon eastern 9 pacific thanks for joining me today